Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. You may be wondering why the strange clip. Well, today uh, we will be continuing our series on encountering the Messiah. And in our text today, Jesus makes a bold claim. But then unlike Tesla, he backs that claim up with some evidence. Tesla had claimed their glass was shatterproof. Clearly, it was not. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house this morning, to be with your people, to uh, open your word and to declare it to one another. And may we be active listeners this morning, reasoning over what the word has to say to us. May you uh, free us of our sins and distractions may we be able to focus on you today. May we encounter the Messiah. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Our text opens by saying that they had, uh, it opens with a return to Capernaum. Jesus had moved from his childhood home of Nazareth to Capernaum, uh, literally the village of Nahum, uh, where, which will serve as his home base for most of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, he makes a name for himself through preaching and miracles. He then leaves to preach elsewhere in Galilee and now is a homecoming. And it is, verse 1 here, reported that he was at home. I've enjoyed imagining that this roof-raising encounter was literally at Jesus' house. Uh, we do know that Jesus says elsewhere, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, there's actually no possessive personal pronoun here. It's quite literally Jesus is at the house. Now, we are introduced to a house, Peter's house, in uh, Mark chapter 1. It could be Peter's house. It could be Mary's house. He could be uh, coming in residing with his mom. Regardless, it seems to be there's some familiarity with this home. This is not just some stranger's house he's walked into. 
It says that many were gathered there. This place was packed. Think standing room only. But more than that, this was not a time of social distancing. Uh, People had less of a concept of personal space. They're really packed in like sardines. You guys ever play that game? And so they are all nice and tight. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, although today's encounter with the Messiah centers on a miracle performed by Jesus, we shouldn't forget that Jesus is all about the word. And while I secretly hope that something I say will impress you today, oh wait, maybe that's not a secret anymore. Uh, What I really want to do is to give you confidence in the word of God and in the God of the word. And so that's where we find our hope today. Finally, next up, we meet these four men carrying a lame friend. Now, if you grew up in church, this story is likely not new to you. You may have seen pictures or even colored pictures of your own uh, around this scenario. But the architecture of this day, and particularly in this region, often included flat roofs. Uh, In fact, with stairs that would go up the side, it was kind of a a way to extend your square footage with a patio or maybe a garden space. But the roofs were not intended to be modular. Uh, The design was not for holes to be improvised in them. These four men are disruptors, but they are saying there is nothing that's going to stand between them and finding relief and hope for their friend. Mark tells us that Jesus sees their faith, a point we'll come back to. But to add to this unexpected event, Jesus does something else unexpected. Now, I imagine, you know, in picture in my mind, the roof opens up. It's this perfect rectangle rectangle, and and down drops this guy always staying perfectly horizontal. uh, And and then light is the sun's shining in and light beams are there and he finds this space on the floor to end up laying down. Uh, Whereas we just learned this place was so packed nobody could get in, but all of a sudden now space has opened up. There might have been some body surfing going on to get him into position, but we do believe that he's, uh, I think it's right to picture him laying there on the floor in front of Jesus, and perhaps this was a younger man because Jesus addresses him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, when we encounter the Messiah, he acts in our best interest. If the paralytic had known that this offer was on the table, the offer of forgiveness of his sins, he would have jumped at the prospect. Jumped may not be the right expression. (laughs) But he didn't know forgiveness was even on the menu, right? Jesus has gone on secret menu here, ordered up some forgiveness for this guy. In fact, uh, how great is it for us to rest in the comfort and wisdom and goodness of God to know that he wants what is best for us? But yet, how hard is it when we look at our life circumstances and say, is this really what's best? Is this what I get? Is this all there is? Well, the truth of knowing that God wants what's best for us is better grasped when we want what is best for God. 
As a young person, I picked Psalm 37.4 as a life verse. Now I realize there are too many good verses for me to pick just one, but Psalm 37.4 still holds powerful and profound influence in my life. It says this, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, my understanding of this has grown from my childhood because initially I understood this backwards. I thought, hey, I've got some desires. The Bible says I go delight myself in the Lord and he's going to give those to me. I had it backwards. When in fact, the psalmist here is saying, and this is David in this case, he's saying, hey, delight yourself in the Lord. Seek the Lord. Be happy in God. Seek the things of God. And then God is going to put into your heart desires. When he's going to give you the desires of your heart, it's not that it's not that he's fulfilling the pre-existing legacy desires that were in your heart. Instead, he takes your heart of stone, he gives you a heart of flesh that beats after him. And then when you and God are on the same page, you will ask what you will, and he will give it to you because you are asking according to his will. When you want what's best for God, and God wants what's best for you, things will align. If this paralytic and his friends knew the true reward of forgiveness, they would have all chosen paralysis for the remainder of their lives for the hope that is forgiveness. Now, what is the reaction that happens here as this forgiveness is granted? We continue in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes, these are kind of the religious leaders and elite of the day, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? For when you encounter the Messiah, he confronts your inner reality. How often we've heard those today who reject the offer of the gospel because they say things like, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the kind of person that I really am. Let me assure you this morning that Jesus knows, like there's nothing hidden from him and everything is exposed. We sang the hymn just a minute ago that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It's a little bit archaic language, but the thought is, I'll clean myself up and then I'll go to Jesus. But the reality is, if you wait for that, you will never come. Jesus is in the bathing business, right? You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. Come as you are, let him do the cleaning. As he approaches and, and looks at our and confronts our inner reality. Now these scribes, these religious leaders, they often get a bad rap and often for very good reason. But I want to point out to you today three things that these men are doing right. First, they were checking Jesus out. It says they were sitting there. They were in the right place, and regardless of their motive, they came to see what this Jesus guy is all about. 
Jesus welcomes skeptics. We saw this illustration last week in the life of Lee Strobel, the uh, award-winning investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune who sought to disprove the claims of Jesus only to find those claims to be undeniably true. If you are here with questions today, we welcome them. Jesus welcomes your questions. Uh, Secondly, they were wrestling with the truth. Our text uses the word questioning. Uh, It's kind of a, a reasoning. It's the it's the word we get dialogue from, like it's, it l- is literally their internal dialogue processing what Jesus is saying, and they're wrestling with the truth. Now, I hope that is what you are doing today. I hope you didn't come and check your brain at the door and are simply here being amused. The word amuse, in, f- in fact, means uh, to muse means to think. You put the little ah, a in front of it, amuse, just like atheist, means not to think. So when we are being amused, it is quite literally, we are not thinking. But God is looking for active listeners, as honest and faithful as I hope to be today. You need to be able to take what I am saying, go back and put it and pair it against God's word, the revealed truth, to validate if it is trustworthy. So the religious leaders are there. They are processing, analyzing the truth. And you know what? They actually make accurate theological conclusions. They rightly concluded, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, this wandering preacher shows up. He's been healing people and casting out demons and is worth taking a look into. But now they show up and he's forgiving sins? Well, I'll tell you, they are right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, I'm not talking about you sin against me and I can forgive you because David tells us that against you and you only, like all sin is against God and I can't forgive your sin against God. Only God can forgive those sins. So let's see Jesus' response here. Uh, Verse 8. Immediately, immediately is a fun one because uh, Mark uses that over 40 times in his short gospel. He's always in a hurry. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he does. So when we encounter the Messiah, he displays his power. Jesus ultimately heals this paralytic, and in do sowing, it's less to relieve the man of his paralysis, and more for Jesus to present himself as the Messiah. It's a byproduct that this guy gets healed. Jesus wants to show who he really is. You see, the scribes had rightly discerned that only God can forgive sins. To help them understand that he is God, Jesus proceeds to do the healing. At the same time, he uses this title, Son of Man, which we saw uh, Even last week, 
Who do men say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is an honorific or title from the Old Testament. It's a designation for the coming Messiah. Jesus' action here is saying to these religious men, I know what you're thinking. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. Guess what? I am God. Now I want to park here in this section for a few minutes and examine this philosophical question asked by Jesus. This question I think is central to everything going on in the passage. Jesus says again, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. I think it's a little bit of a rhetorical question for them at the time, but uh, I've asked several people, and I got several different answers. Well, really, there's only two answers. It's an either-or situation here. But I got several different explanations as to why they felt one way or the other. Well, I'm going to first examine this statement, really talking in the physical realm, in the realm of what is seen, what is tangible. From that point of view, I'd like to say and suggest that it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. You see, I could walk around the room today and I could look at each one of you and I could announce to every individual, your sins are forgiven. You may question in your hearts my authority to do that, but for the skeptic, this isn't a disprovable statement. It's not like there's a a bulb on top of all of our heads that lights up when our sins are forgiven. And now we can look at one another and say, oh, his sins are forgiven. His sins are forgiven. Wouldn't that be nice as, as we proclaim the gospel to people to be able to just know, oh, they got it. But instead, this is an intangible. We don't know. You can't disprove if I come and say to you, your sins are forgiven. However, if I walk around making claims in the physical realm to heal people of their paralysis, we'll quickly see how much of a charlatan I might be. I like to parallel this with James, the brother of Jesus, who writes about this in his letter. If you look with me at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? For example, I imagine that's in parentheses right there. For example... If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So which is easier to say, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, or say, here's a coat and some food? When we encounter the Messiah, faith is made known. Faith is revealed. The invisible becomes visible. The unseen becomes seen. The tangible becomes, the intangible becomes tangible. Faith and works show up. I said we come back to it, but in uh, when these four men show up and lower their friend, through the roof, it says that Jesus saw their faith. 
Now, granted, Jesus can walk around this room and he can see internally into all of us to, to know whether we have individual faith. He has the ability to see the unseen in that respect. But for these men, it wasn't that Jesus was looking into their hearts. He saw them show up. He saw their faith in action. When they woke up that morning, they didn't look at their lame friend and say, go in peace, be well, and walk. No. They picked him up. They carried them through the heat of the day. They didn't let a roof stand in their way in getting him to the relief that he needed. Faith in action. Now, don't hear me teaching a works-based salvation. We believe sola fide, that Latin means faith alone. And the Bible teaches that. We believe that salvation is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. That's in your worship guide. You can fill that in. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to explain it. Salvation is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a great foundation for understanding how our salvation is by faith alone. If you haven't yet, I recommend and encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights for our 5 by 5 by 5 where one of the tracks is a study through the book of Ephesians. And uh, in the next week or so, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. However, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace... Are you saved through faith? And then he says, it's not, of your, it's not of yourselves, it's not of works, particularly so that nobody can boast about it. So you are saved by faith alone. But we fall short if we stop at verse 9 and don't look at verse 10. As Paul continues, he says that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works are always associated with salvation. But we need a right understanding of timing. Our works are not intended to precede our faith, but to proceed out of our faith. We don't work our works don't come before we believe. Our works come because we have already believed. Our working is how we make our faith known. Saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. And our works will always come because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the conclusion of the narrative this morning. Jesus says, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like that. When we encounter the Messiah this morning, we can't help but praise. Do you notice the uh, 
second miracle takes place here. You could not get in. That place was packed. Wall-to-wall people. You could not get in through the door. But somehow, when this, somehow, when this paralytic is healed, it's like the people split like the Red Sea. I mean, I don't know. That's how I'm envisioning this in my mind. And like, he's got this path to walk out. But one day we will all encounter the Messiah in a physical, visible way. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we cannot help but praise. When we see the reality and truth of who Jesus is, it is beyond us. We cannot help but to praise who he is. Before we close, I want to visit the central question one more time. Jesus never tells us which is easier to say. I presented to you a physical perspective that the easier thing to say is the intangible one. Your sins are forgiven. But let's consider our speaker this morning. It is Jesus, and as God, he is omnipotent. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word that all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made He's got power oozing out of him. It is with ease that he can look at this paralytic with the power to heal. But what about forgiving? Isn't that part of his nature? Isn't that within his power and authority to do? I do believe that forgiveness and mercy are part of his nature. But so are righteousness and justice. And you see that sin comes with a penalty. By his nature, Jesus, who is just and also wants to be merciful, has to reconcile those two, right? And we know that justice and mercy meet on the cross. And so when Jesus, for Jesus to be able to conform to his own nature... He can't forgive those sins without someone paying the penalty. So when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, he must have in mind the cost of that forgiveness. Our forgiveness cost Jesus his life. Jesus knew that in order to forgive those sins while maintaining his nature of holiness, he was going to have to suffer and to be crucified. So perhaps the easier thing to say is rise, take your bed and walk from Jesus' perspective. I don't know what brought you here this morning. Who brought you here? Which one of those four friends carried you on their way? Or what your motive or motivation was was to be here? If you come bringing your skepticism, there's no question that Jesus is afraid of. If you come because you have a physical need, Jesus may bring relief for that, but he is more interested in meeting your spiritual needs first. If you're here simply to put a check in the box of church attendance, I feel you fall far short of God's plan for your life. But my hope is that this morning you encounter the Messiah and that you will see he wants what's best for you, what's in your best interest, that 
maybe your inner self and turmoil will be confronted with the truth of the gospel today, that you might walk away from here a display of his power, that you might walk away putting your faith into action, and that you'd walk away with a life lived to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good, and we trust in your word. And as we come face to face with Jesus today, as he has encountered the city of Capernaum and the crowd, the four men, the paralytic, the scribes, and where we might find and see and put ourselves into the biblical narrative, the story this morning. May we see what it means to follow you. May we see and understand the cost of our salvation and what it means to take this free gift of salvation and put it into action as we carry others in to hear the gospel. May we encounter and come face to face with you in some way this morning that something would be revealed in us so that we could walk away with an action, with something to do. I pray the truth has been proclaimed. Lord, we put our hope in you and you alone. And we trust that you will never let us go, never let us down, and be forever faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?